reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 1 to 17. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as myself, as I myself am. But each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Let's pray. Father, we hear uh, your word that you inspired and gave to us through holy men of God. And I pray, God, that you would work in us with your Holy Spirit, that you would unravel to us the mysteries of your word and your gospel, even in this seventh chapter of 1 Corinthians. Father, I pray that you would give Pastor Paul power and clarity as he proclaims to us the word of God. And Father, help us to submit to your word as our only final rule of faith and practice. So, Father, I pray that you would bless as we praise you and worship you in hearing and understanding and obeying your word. Amen. We're uh, continuing our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. It's, a, it's been a great book, and we're going to come across a lot of uh, practical issues uh, still. Uh, I hope you maybe noticed, as Chris read this morning, that the flow of the letter now has changed a little bit. And Paul is still dealing with a lot of issues, um, particularly issues related to sexual immorality. But now, rather than dealing with specific reports that he has heard as people have visited him, 
he is responding to a letter that he's received from the Corinthians or from some in the Corinthian church. We don't have that letter anymore. It's disappeared. But he says to them in verse 7, Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. In fact, that phrase, now concerning about, is going to be used six times through the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians. So it seems now that Paul has shifted gears and he's responding to comments and questions that they have asked and raised um, in this correspondence to him. Uh, it's a... Uh, issues will relate around marriage, around celibacy, around meat that's offered to idols, about uh, worship, about spiritual gifts, money, uh, certain individuals like Apollos. They're, they're very practical issues that he's going to now take up with this uh, congregation. And first in the queue is comments about sexual relations. And it helps to remind ourselves why these questions are possibly coming up from the people in the Corinthian churches. Many of them had recently been called out of lifestyles and out of a city which was noted for its sexual promiscuity. It was a sex-crazed city which gave full license to almost any form of sexual expression. There were four different kinds of marriage, one individual has pointed out. Prostitution was rampant. Fornication was all over the place. Homosexuality. In other words, sexual immorality was simply the norm in the city of Corinth. And so these questions were, were naturally being asked by these new Christians about what does it mean to me to live out my faith now in this particular culture? How do I deal with a changed life when I had engaged in that kind of behavior and now I am trying to live in a way that is pleasing to God? How do I bring my passions under control? How do I deal with the sexual tension that I feel in my life? How do I abstain, and what does that mean to abstain from sexual immorality? These are the kinds of things that these new Christians were wrestling with, their new identity in Christ with sexual purity, while at the same time not abandoning the city where they worked and where they lived. And so they were testing out their conclusions in a, in, in a letter that they had written to Paul. Conclusions about sexual relations and spirituality, about abstinence and did it have a place in celibacy and was that the best mode of, of lifestyle or marriage. And it's, so it's in this context that Paul writes these comments that Chris just read for us a few moments earlier. I hope you understand that it's important for us to recognize that this is not all that Paul has to say about marriage. It's not all that Paul or the Bible has to say about sex as well. I want you to constantly just remind yourself as we go through this text to understand that Paul is not giving a full view of marriage. He is not giving us a, a systematic view of marriage from the Bible. Yet living in the world as you and I do, one that is also sex-crazed and full of sexual temptation and sexual idolatry, what Paul writes to the Corinthian believers is incredibly practical and relevant for us today. The Corinthian solution, it seemed, to sexual temptation was abstinence for everyone, even for those who were already married. And maybe it was, in their view, some form of higher spirituality, as though sex and sanctification didn't go together. And in responding to them, Paul doesn't offer, I hope you'll notice, a one-size-fits-all guideline. He treats each person in each situation as, as unique and as individuals. And he wants people to figure out in their own circumstances 
how it is that they follow the Lord, how they abstain from sexual immorality, and how they find avenues to express their sexual uh, part of their body or their lives. The obligation to avoid fornication and to be obedient to the word of God is the only absolute that Paul really presents in these verses ahead of us. So the first thing, and I've sort of broken it down into five points, I think it is. The first one is simply illumination. Some much-needed light on celibacy, marriage, and sexual relations. This is how he begins this response. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, they had written to him. And this is what they had written. This is not what Paul is saying. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul needs to bring illumination to this statement that they had made. He needs to bring further information to it, to clarify it, to teach them, to shed light on what it is they're actually saying. And so again, this last part of that verse has been lifted from their correspondence, and that is what Paul is now going to deal with. It's specifically a statement that was made by some in the Corinthian church. Again, they said, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. I want us to understand this is not Paul's view of marriage. Of celibacy and singleness, yes, but of marriage, no. Paul will tell us that his preference is for singleness and that one remains single, but he certainly stands beside and behind marriage. And so again, some of the people in Corinth were these new Christians were wrestling with living in this immoral city, and they had wrongly concluded that it is good for every man to abstain from sexual relations in all circumstances. That was their solution to sexual temptation and living in an environment of sexual immorality. Paul's response, though, is broad-ranging. And as you read these verses, it becomes clear that sexual abstinence is not the only way to deal with living in a sex-crazed environment. I hope we understand that. It is not the only way to live in a sex-crazed environment. Also, sexual abstinence is not a biblically prescribed method of sanctification. In other words, it is not a path to higher spirituality or better spirituality than those who are married and engage in sexual relations. In fact, Paul will write another letter to a man, Timothy, and in that particular letter, he says, there are some that are forbidding you to marry. He says, their teaching is, comes from deceitful spirits and from the teaching of demons. So abstinence in marriage is not a biblical doctrine. It also, we find, or it's not uh, a method to higher sanctification. We also find that sometimes uh, we make these external rules thinking that they will help us with our internal battles, but Paul clearly says that regulations like do not taste, do not handle, do not touch, and even avoid sexual immorality have no impact on the indulgence and the desires of our flesh. Those are external realities. The struggle is an internal reality. And finally, sexual abstinence is not in keeping with God's design for marriage. In fact, as we will see, it has no place in marriage between a husband and a wife. Some of your versions might have said it is good for a man not to touch a woman. The issue is here, that's a euphemism for sexual relations. That is what we are dealing with. 
Paul is going to point out that the Corinthian position is untenable for those who are married. And Paul is specifically concerned with their position and its impact on those who are married. I hope you understand as we read this and as I'm going to be talking about that Paul is not offering reasons why people should marry, but arguments why sexual relations in marriage are binding on a spouse and why sexual abstinence in marriage is both impractical and inappropriate. Just a note, you might have already seen this. They have written to Paul from a distinctly male point of view. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Notice, and I hope you notice this very carefully, Paul is meticulous in his balance as he responds to them, always dealing with both the man and the woman. Paul is no misogynist. And so Paul is about to give illumination to this issue that has been raised. Then he gives a qualification now, which is a necessary one. Context matters, and marriage provides the only legitimate expression for sexual activity. Paul wants to drive this point home to us. Many look at this particular verse in chapter 2, or or verse 2 of chapter 7, and say, man, Paul is harsh. Boy, Paul is ignorant. But to do so misses the point. And we need to be reminded again, as I said earlier, that what Paul is writing in chapter 7 is not everything that Paul has to say about marriage, and neither is it all that the Bible has to say about marriage. Remember again, Paul is dealing with a very specific issue, sexual relations and abstinence. And Paul is describing that and making specific context or comment on that. He is not saying that sexual relations are the ground of marriage, that is a remedy for sexual temptation, but rather he is explaining that marriage is the plan and provision of God for legitimate physical love. Later, I would encourage you to take some time to read Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 following, and there you'll see Paul's incredibly high spiritual view of marriage and that in marriage what one sees in a marriage between a man and a woman is really a picture of the relationship of the bride and Christ her husband and it's a beautiful picture of what physical marriage is in a spiritual reality you go through the rest of the Bible and you can find for instance that there there is a number of purposes for marriage one is procreation that the Bible is fairly clear that God has given marriage in order to be the context in which children are um, conceived and are born and raised. The Bible also tells us that marriage and sexual relations in marriage is for pleasure. You can read uh, the book of Proverbs chapter 5. You can go to uh, Song of Solomon and find that uh, pleasure is not something that should be removed from sexual relations. It is part of the gift that God has given to marriage. It is also a place for partnership, that God has given the woman to the man that they might be partners together in life. Paul is dealing, though, with the purpose of marriage, which is purity. And he's responding again to this specific statement about sexual relations that he's received in a letter. Some there, again, are suggesting that the only way to deal with sexual temptation is through celibacy even for the married. Or that one is more spiritual if one refrains from sexual relations. Again, it is to this then that Paul writes, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, 
Each man should have his own wife, and each woman should have her own husband. Again, this is a statement against polygamy. Uh, clearly, Paul is coming down against that. And the notion, again, the word, there's a lot of euphemisms here. The, the, the word to have is a euphemism for sexual relations. Paul is at pains to point out that unfulfilled sexual desire can be very strong for both sexes. And notice again, as I said, the careful balance. Men and women can be tempted alike. And notice that Paul affirms sexual relations in marriage. Sex is not a bad thing. It is a gift of God. It is part of a normal, regular marriage. He will go on to say that, as we will say, that it, is ought, it ought to be a regular, habitual part of marriage. So for many, the way to deal with the constant sexual pressure is through marriage, not abstinence and not remaining single. And I would say again, it is inadvisable at best for married people to abstain from sexual relations. Those who marry are to be sexually active. It should be obvious that celibacy presents real challenges. If celibacy is chosen for the wrong reasons by those with the wrong capabilities, the results can be disastrous. And we have seen this in the history of the church down through hundreds and hundreds of years. There are incredible dangers that come through choosing celibacy because you think it's the right thing to do, not because God has called you. Lust and sexual deviance and all manner of fornication. If I could be a little bit pastoral, unless you have been given the gift of celibacy, as far as it is in your control, one should pray to get married sooner than later for so many reasons. If I could give a little bit more pastoral advice to those of you who are dating or those of you who have children who are, will be dating, I am not a real supporter of long engagements. Sexual temptation is so great, and it is so strong, and once a young couple has determined that they are going to get married, the best thing is for them to get married sooner than later. Kathy's dad, who had three or five daughters in the home, had a line that he often said to his girls, and I think I heard it a few times. If you have to, get out of the car and walk. And sadly, Kathy had to walk a few times. It's, you know, it's something that we battle with, but you need to understand that. Sexual temptation is not something to play with. The lies couple have listened to over the centuries and the years and excuses that couples have made leading them to engage in fornication before marriage bring significant problems into the marriage down the road. Often you will hear them say after the fact, well, we're as good as married, so why can't we have sexual relations? No, you're not. And the bottom line is simply this. You are not married until you are married. And until you are married, I believe that you should refrain from all sexual activity, even the kind that falls just short of sexual intercourse. Don't move a boundary that God has set. Obedience matters, especially in the area of sex. And so again, until you are married, you are to refrain from sexual relationships. 
And until you are married, there really is an abiding sense that the one you are dating ought to be treated as a brother or a sister. There is a great book, um, uh, you know, as I set, mentioned that, it, I think it's called Sex, Dating, and Relationships. And they make a great case for the fact that until you are married, even a dating relationship, you ought to view the one you're dating as a brother or a sister. Fornication will have consequences for you and for your marriage. The best of all paths is to remain pure, but if you have stumbled or if you do stumble, confess your sin to God, talk to your spouse about it, ask for forgiveness, ask God to bring healing into your marriage and go forth with a determination once again to live a sexually pure life. So Paul's qualification to their statement is a significant one. Because of temptation to sexual immorality, one should get married. Thirdly, clarification. Obligation and duty. Regular sexual relations with your spouse. It seems reading between the lines here that some in Corinth were promoting celibacy within their marriage at their spouse's expense. Possibly, as we will see in a couple weeks, one of the partners had become a Christian and the other one had not. And so they're wondering, what's my obligation as a Christian now in a relationship with a non-Christian? What's my obligation to sexual relations? Well, Paul will say the answer is it doesn't matter whether you're you're two Christians married or whether you're married to a non-Christian or whether you're two non-Christians that are married. He would say sexual relations ought to be a habitual duty, not a spasmodic duty. Paul does not see a sexless marriage. Physical intimacy in marriage is sacred. It is proper, and it is obligatory. Spouses are to give sexual satisfaction to one another. He recognizes the gift of God, that, of, of, of the gift of God and the pleasure that is involved in sexual relations. But he also understands the power of sexual temptation and its dangers. And so he encourages Christians to channel their sex drives properly and in a healthful way. Verse th- three is clear. Married partners have a sexual obligation to their spouse. Sexual relations are not optional. They are not to be used as a reward. They are not to be withheld as a punishment or to be avoided because of disinterest or boredom. Again, at the heart of the interest is the very real power of sexual temptation. I understand this is challenging And I'm trying to be very careful not to be proscriptive, but to be descriptive and practical and honest. And I encourage you, all of you who are married, to go home and talk these things through. He says, though, that the husband has authority over the wife's body and the wife has authority over the husband's body. It is equal. Has authority over is written in the present tense. And so it points to a general reality that is always true. It's a continuous mutual authority over each other's body that that is to continue throughout the marriage relationship. Now in an ultimate sense, our bodies belong to God. And we hear that and we read that in Scripture. In a single state, your body is your own. In a married state, your body belongs to your spouse. I think it's important here, though, to mention something about the sexual purity of a relationship. There is great freedom of expression that God has given to married couples. But he's left the expression or that freedom of expression to each individual couple. 
In Hebrews, we read, marriage must be respected by all and that the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. Marriage, in other words, must be honored by all and marriages must be kept undefiled because the sexually immoral and adulterers will come under God's judgment. The implication of that is that marriage can be defiled through sexual immorality and adultery. How? On a couple occasions in my pastoral ministry, I've had discussions with Christian couples who have wondered about the use of pornography in their marriage and have wondered if it was appropriate to bring that into their bedrooms in order to encourage or enhance their sexual relationship. I hope the answer that I would give to them is obvious. It's an emphatic no. The deceitful expectations that this places on one's spouse, the introduction of sin that this brings through lustful thoughts into the marriage, the clear command of God that marriage, the marriage bed be, be undefiled speak clearly against any such practice. Pornography has no place in or out of our marriages. God's word through Paul in 1 Thessalonians also speaks to this issue. For this is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you learn how to control his or her own body in holiness and honor. For God has not called us to impurity, but in holiness. That call applies to the married and the unmarried alike. So why this obligation? Well, in a world that is all about us, such a word of God sounds so offensive and so strong. Yet the truth is, if you get married, your body is no longer your own. Marriage is about two people becoming one. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. When we get married, we give up the exclusive right to our body. And once married, life is then expressed through unity. And so sexual relations in marriage are both an obligation and a duty. Verses 5 to 6, Paul deals very clearly then with the issue of abstinence in marriage. Here is the gist of his words. For those already married, celibacy is not an option. It recklessly opens the door to Satan, making one vulnerable to the wanton, wanton ways of their environment and is utterly unfair to the spouse. God's word is, all, is, is clear, unmistakably. It is a command. Do not deprive one another. Do not deprive one another of physical relations. I'm under no illusions that, as to what some of you may be thinking, but the command of God is no less important and no more difficult here than many other commands of God that we find throughout the Scriptures. And it's not up to us to pick and choose which ones we will obey. And after all, whoever said that obedience is easy? I believe this is more of an issue than many of us would like to think. A number of weeks ago, I happened to open the province, and there was an article in there by their uh, relationship sex expert. I read about four lines of it. And in those four lines, she was commenting about how in many marriages, the couples experienced intimacy a couple times a month and maybe a couple times a year. She said, that's not healthy. And I would agree with her. That is not God's intention for marriage. 
So Paul gives them the conditions under which abstinence can be practiced in a marriage. He says, first of all, in verse 5, Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement. First of all, it's mutual. It's a discussion that a husband and wife have together that they say, you know, for a time being we are going to withdraw and restrain from sexual relations. And then he says, by mutual agreement for a limited time. It can't be an open-ended expectation. It can't be an open-ended time because that will just increase temptation towards sexual sin. And then finally, he gives the one reason. He says, to give yourselves completely to prayer. I've heard many, many reasons over the course of ministry why people have withdrawn from sexual relations. And some of them I understand. I really do. I've never heard anyone, though, give to me 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 5. But I hope you understand as you reflect on this that what Paul sees and what he's being honest about is the very real strength of sexual temptation and the way that Satan has an opportunity to bring about great destruction in our relationships through sexual sin. And that's what he says. After that period of time, come back together again. Why? So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. You see, Satan is out to destroy us, and he will destroy us within marriages. He will destroy us outside of marriages. He will look for any possible opportunity he can to bring about destruction within a marriage relationship. As Paul will say a little bit later, um, uh, no temptation is overtaking you, but such that is common to man. And God is, uh, is, is good, and he will provide a way of escape for you through it. Well, one of the ways of escape in marriage from sexual temptation is through sexual relations. Again, here is a bit of pastoral advice, observation. The demands of many workplaces today place expectations that spouses be away from their partners for extended periods of time. And when considering such a job or such lengthy absences, I think it's more than advisable for couples to sit down and really work this through and think this out and see if they are able to manage those realities and make sure that Satan will not use those lengthy absences as a means of sexual temptation. And so Paul's admon admonishment is clear. Abstinence cannot be imposed on a spouse unilaterally, but must be a decision reached by mutual consent for a limited period of time. And I think verse 6 attaches back to this. It's a concession that Paul makes. He says, now as a concession, not as a command, I say this. That's referring back. And the concession is simply this concession that, ab or that prayer is a reason for abstinence in a marriage. He's not commanding it. Say, listen, if there's any concession, that's it. Just reinforcing once again the place of regular sexual activity in a marriage. And then finally, he makes a commendation. Two God-given gifts, one man's pre preference. Paul pulls together what he has said now, and in verses to come, he's going to expand on some of these things, on singleness and marriage. But his point is really to drive home to all of us that both singleness and marriage are gifts of God. Not one, not the other, but both of them are gifts of God. But his preference, Paul's preference, is for singleness. 
It's very likely that Paul had been married. I don't know if you've thought about that or thought that through. It's very likely, though, that Paul had been married. Even what he says in chapter 7 about marriage shows deep personal, I think, insight into the struggles and the issues that married people face. And I think Paul was married. Before his Damascus Road experience, Paul was described, self-described as a Pharisee of Pharisees. To be an ordained rabbi, you had to be married. He was absolutely orthodox, and orthodox Jews viewed marriage as an obligation. Furthermore, Paul seems to suggest in the book of Acts that he was a member of the Sanhedrin. And you couldn't be on that council if you were not married. And so you say, well, what happened to Paul's wife? Well, we don't know. And this is speculation. But some suggest that possibly she died. Many others, though, seem to indicate that she probably left him after he became a Christian. And that maybe helps us understand the pain and the things that he says about being married to an unbeliever and how one relates in that situation. Nevertheless, Paul will tell them of his preference to singleness and therefore celibacy. Although marriage is good, not everyone should be or has to be married. He'll go on and say celibacy is a gift of God that enables focused service and complete devotion to Christ. And the history of the church is dotted with men and women who have had that gift and that call from God and have made incredible contributions to the church, which they never would have been able to made, make had they been married. But marriage, too, is a gift of God that provides partnership and pleasure and a context for the family. It is not a sin to get married. Paul will write a little bit later, but if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. I want to say clearly, celibacy is not for every Christian. And I would equally say marriage is not for every Christian. But regardless of which state you find yourself in, the call and command to sexual purity is for every Christian. And the physical part of life is just that. It's a part of it, not the most important part. Rather, serving God in holiness is the most important part. And may God help each one of us here to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against our soul, whether we are married or single, so that we might walk in holiness and purity before our God. Such practical wisdom from God's Word for us today. Father, we thank you for your Word. Will you help it to settle in our hearts? Again, where I have gone too far from your Word, I pray that that would fall away. But where I, where I have been accurate in explaining and pointing out what your word is saying, will that find a place in our hearts and in our minds and in our will? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.